Most people underestimate the power of process. They stick it in the back seat and forget about it until it's too late. But they shouldn't. Processes run the world, literally all of it. Stocked supermarkets, on-time trains, and safely landing planes are all made possible by systems of intricate interlinked processes. They are the secret sauce of every great company, and HR teams are responsible for some of the most important processes of all. Onboarding employees, building teams, crafting culture, these vital systems are the lifeblood of every organization. That's why this episode is brought to you by Process Street, the process platform of choice for HR teams around the world. Process Street is a no-code platform that lets you transform your most important HR processes into powerful workflows. Design beautiful employee onboarding experiences with extreme engagement that increase inclusion and reduce turnover. Sync tasks into Slack or Microsoft Teams, automate emails, handoffs, and so much more. Thousands of teams, large and small, trust Process Street to manage their most important people processes. Like Salesforce that used Process Street to onboard all the 3,000 Slack employees after the $27 billion acquisition. You can learn more and sign up for a free account at www.process.st. Welcome to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast the podcast all about the delicate balance between people and business, and quite literally, reconnecting the two. My name is Tracy Rubin, and I've spent nearly my entire professional career in HR. Join me as I share stories, opinions, and words of advice with you each week. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here for another week. I'm really excited about this topic because we've touched on it a couple times. It's been sprinkled throughout the podcast these last two years, but we are going to be speaking about growth mindsets and really focusing in and honing in on that topic. And I'm not doing it alone. I'm doing it with an amazing guest, Dr. Brad Harris. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Brad Harris. He is a professor of management and human resources at HEC Paris and co-founder of the People Leader Accelerator. He's co-authored two books, 3D Team Leadership, A New Approach for Complex Teams, and Scaling for Success, People Priorities for High Growth Organizations. His research has been published in leading academic journals and cited in popular outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, CNBC, Inc.com, and Fast Company. Brad holds a PhD from Texas A&M University and previously taught at the University of Illinois and Texas Christian University. Brad has won multiple teaching awards for his work in leadership development, including an international recognition from poets and quants. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Brad Harris. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Tracy. Of course. And before we even get into it, tell everyone, because I know I love this this factoid, tell everyone where you are dialing in from. Okay, we're dialing in. So I, I want to do the thing. Long time <laughs> listener, first time caller, you know, this deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm calling in from, from Paris, France. So oh. if for those that can see the video, um, it's got the houseman style building yes. behind me. But for those that are listening, you can probably hear occasionally the traffic noise. <laughs> right. And you know what? This is this is the beauty of life. I went from New York where there was constant traffic in the background and now we've ventured out to Paris. And honestly, if I hear traffic from Paris, I'm going to feel like I'm there. So maybe we'll get a little bit of a dose of it if 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 I'm lucky. If you're lucky. Right. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast 
growth mindsets, adding value to growing organizations to organizations in general. And of course, this topic of imposter syndrome is near and dear to my heart. I, like I said in the intro, this has been sprinkled and kind of tossed around a little bit in the podcast, but I am no expert. Unlike you, you are an expert and you teach this stuff. So why don't we just kick it off? Like what is a growth mindset? Who can have a growth mindset? And like, where do we start? Yeah, that, that is such an interesting place for us to start this interview. And I've got to warn you, I'm probably going to surprise you with this response. So I'm going to give a, a, a lengthy preamble here. I am all about growth. So with People Leader Accelerator, uh, we're all about helping top of function HR leaders uh, survive the, the hyper growth and high rapid growth of their organizations. But as part of that, we're also trying to help them scale up themselves and their own leadership capabilities. So I am 100% behind the growth story. That's how I anchor my teaching, my writing, and even these podcast appearances. Um, and, and I think the general theme and how I approach this is we frequently, not always, but we frequently in our leadership journeys hit these moments where what got us here won't get us there. And uh, that, that's like a really good adage that, that forces us to rethink what's important, what's not, what we need to add, what we need to drop, and things like that. Now, in terms of growth mindset, I, I'm an academic and that comes with a lot of flaws. And like one of them is I do not give straightforward answers, but let me give you the best <laughs> part. Uh, growth mindset is based on the research of Carol Dweck, who's an extremely talented um, and really influential scholar. And, and her original writing on this said like people tend to have, you know, people argue if it's state based or these really deep rooted dispositions, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, the, we have these these ideas that we are fixed um, and we can't get really substantively better on our own. We're just born the way we are, or we have these um, incremental or growth mindsets, meaning we can add to who we are. And that, that makes a ton of sense. And her early work supported that suggested like if we can prime people to take on these growth mindsets versus these fixed mindsets, we can get some results. Um, since then, we have had a devil of a time in the practical sense, really altering people's mindsets at a systematic level. And so one really good review of this critique of this literature, at least in how it's implemented in organizations, comes from Mark Efron with the Talent Strategy Group. You can find it on LinkedIn, but he distills some recent academic literature, including some meta-analyses that suggest like, while growth mindset maybe like a really good attitude for us to have an outlook, even a mindset as it may not be where we need to invest our training dollars. So hmm. I'm sort of in, in Mark's space here of, I love the spirit of it. I love what we're trying to do. I'm still trying to figure out what we actually do with Carol Dweck's work and how we, how we take her general ideas and make it scale in organizations. So I've probably got a more nuanced take on the actual growth mindset term than a lot of right. people. Right. Well, I think what's interesting about this is that we, I think that people throw this term around a lot, growth mindset, have a growth mindset, think globally, but there is an importance in understanding what we say. And I remember early on in my career when this, when I first kind of became aware of this ideal and it was never explained to me. It was just like, think globally, think globally, but it, that's not 
the only thing that contributes to a growth mindset. You have to be open. You have to be self-aware. You have to be willing to change, willing to learn. And I say willing very intentionally because I'm a believer that people can change, but I'm not a believer that everyone wants to change. So when it comes to, and I, I would love to hear your perspective on this, can people change in a, whether it's an academic environment, business environment, or even just personally, can they change or is there so much more to that? <laughs> There's a little bit more, but I sure hope they can change. And like <laughs> you, as someone that's like dedicated her career to HR and then you have this podcast and I'm, I'm a teacher, goodness, our whole lives fall apart, our professional lives, at least if we can't change. Yes. So I, I do think people are quite malleable and that would be consistent with what Efron's saying and what yeah. Weck's saying in her original work. So no, no problem there. The only parts that were, were sort of stable on it, and even then it's not completely stable, it's more of a general, it's a little harder to change, is our, our deep-rooted personality stuff. Um, right. So like big five personality traits. But even that has a tendency to change over time with dramatic experiences or age. On all of these other things, skills, outlooks, um, ability to lead, yeah, I believe we can change. And you said it, so I can't take credit for it, but a big part of that, and I think this is where all of us, whether you're a critic of the growth mindset concept and academically or not, would agree, like a big part of this is, are you willing to actually do the hard work to change? So yeah, I am, I'm with you on this one. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad that we're aligned. And not that, that that is not a prerequisite to being on the podcast. We do not have to agree on anything, but it is nice. It is nice that we agree on this. You know, when I think about the human condition, because I always it, like this is the reality of HR for me is that we are dealing with people, we have to focus on humanity. And with that comes this challenge of the nuance of the human condition. You never really know, you know, people are so different, not only through their backgrounds and their their experiences, but just in the way that they present themselves, like just who they are, including ourselves. And so when I think about what you're doing as a professor and, and also with the People Leader Accelerator, how does the growth mindset and its teaching uh, flex itself to people from different backgrounds and upbringings and everything in between, whatever, whatever diversity means in this situation, how does that, how does it, uh, meet people where they are? Um, wow. What a question. So one of the things just to validate where you're coming from here, one of the probably the top two or three principles that we're preaching in People Leader Accelerator, which is really targeted towards people that are leading the HR or people function at high growth companies, is this idea that the answer when we deal with people is almost always, it depends. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's sort of an insufficient answer. Like we have to do something. It's true. Uh, but the spirit of that is, and that, that brings up all kinds of tensions too. Like as leaders, we need to communicate like we're on Twitter and assume our audience has no attention span. Uh, but we need to think and be able to interpret information and treat people um, like we're some great scholar. We have to really look for the nuance there. Um, so wh what does that mean? I, boy, it's a grand challenge. But I, mm. I think I think what we're talking about, things like do people want to change or do they want do they not want to change? And what what is the cause of their resistance if they're in that camp is. It's like these people are complicated and they're coming with stories, they're coming with fears, mm -hmm. and they're coming with all sorts of things in their backpack 
that might make them um, fearful of trying something new and in doing so leaving something that they know they're good at something that's comfortable Ooh. and we all have different things in our backpack so yeah. this, this is a mess but it's a grand challenge that like this is where we make an impact totally Totally. I was just thinking about something that you said before and also what you had said when we first connected a few months back, which is what got you here won't get you there. And that's stuck with me since our first conversation because, you know, uh, in my own personal career journey, I'm always, I always have sights on the next thing. That's like how I am. And I know a ton of my listeners are in that wheelhouse oh, that's in their wheelhouse as well there's always like this okay what's next someone recently told me well as much as we can focus on what's next sometimes we miss the whole journey in getting there and so when when you first said this to me i don't know i think at first i was like oh that's an, a really interesting thought-provoking phrase but now after hearing that feedback and that advice from another party and reflecting on this it makes me think well gosh, if I always take that approach, like the what's next approach, am I really going to get there? Because this is saying like, what got you here isn't necessarily going to get you there. So how can I change the way that I approach the next step in my own career journey? So I'm proud of myself for that, for that uh, thought moment. But when you say that, what got you here won't get you there. How do people apply that day to day? Yeah. Um, so I, I can't take credit for that. That Marshall Goldsmith wrote a book about that name that talks about some of the traps we fall in when we move from some level of management into senior level management. And, and maybe the, his point was even more general when we move from individual contributors into some sort of leadership role where we're in charge of others. Mm -hmm. I think this is where people leader is focused, where people leader accelerator is focused. We're, we're getting people that have like rapidly accelerated in job title and job responsibility but maybe have never been um, strategic partners in their organization. So for them, this what got us here won't get us their mindset. I feel pretty safe in that saying. Like mm -hmm. we have, we're trying to push them to not do everything, not say yes to everything, be ruthless prioritizers of what's important, and more importantly, to protect their time so that they can be strategic, which means pushing down, delegating, all of these sorts of things. Now, to your point, I had a basketball coach in eighth or ninth grade, I think it was ninth grade, named Brian Townley. And I, I don't know if this was his quote or not, probably not, but it was, um, although he was a good coach, uh, his point was success is a journey, not a destination. You've probably heard something similar too. Yeah. And I, I think it gets at this, this idea that, yeah, it's easy to really start looking for the next steps. I'm kind of oriented the same way you are in this, like what's next, what next, what's next. And it's, it's sort of a throwaway comment if we let it be that what got us here won't get us there. But we also have to remember the things that got us here are sort of sort of important to our edge. And, you know, not mm. only is the journey important, but we're doing good things. And if we let go of all of the things that got us here, well, all of a sudden we probably have lost some of our value proposition. Right. Wow. That is a really strong uh really provocative in a way quote that, that success is a journey not a destination because it immediately makes me think about the changes in the labor market and the work environment and everything that we've seen since covid and i was just speaking with someone about how women especially in the workforce have changed the way that they set boundaries because of wanting to be more con connected to the family unit or and men also are in this bucket 
And, and, you know, I think about how that change is reflective of this, you know, history is cyclical. And so we started out before technology boomed, really having like this Monday to Friday experience from what I understand from my parents' generation, where business was closed on Sundays and sometimes Saturdays. And there was this balance between your work life and your personal life. And so I think I've really, um, the podcast has been drawing out this conclusion and this idea that you can have balance and still be successful because so much of what I heard growing up and what I saw growing up is that the only way you can achieve success is by working your, you know, what off day in and day out, which is still true. I, I, I'm not throwing that away. But when people said you've got to work your tail off, it was in number of hours committed to something, not necessarily the value in what you're giving to something. So I, I really like how that kind of ties into what we're talking about today. How does that, how do you feel about that? As you were saying that there was a time in my life when I wanted to be a, a youth minister and I was just mm. thinking, amen, amen, amen. Like this is all good <laughs> stuff. So uh, <laughs> I think you're right. Like we are renegotiating sort of what work looks like. And I like your astuteness in saying that history is cyclical, or at least it's often cyclical. So I have some questions about how much of work is going to change. And I think some of the buzzwordy stuff that's out there, I, I don't disagree that work is forever changed because of whatever happened over the past two or three years. Mm -hmm. However, I'm not sure that all the things that we've, we've heard have changed have really changed that much. So let me give you some examples. And I write this down before every interview. This is like basic job characteristics model, HR 101 stuff that we would mm -hmm. teach our undergrads. Th these are the things that make motivating jobs, skill variety, task identity. Can we see something all the way through? Do we get meaningful feedback? Do we, is our work significant? And do we have some sort of um, autonomous agency in how we approach our work? These five things. And so forget the, the labels on all those. I think all five of those are still incredibly important. Mm -hmm. But what's changed? I think it's probably the modes in which we tap into those things. So, you know, obviously some of us have more flexibility now. We're able to work from different places. You and I are both communicating by Zoom. We're presumably yeah. working not from our office location right now. Uh, you mentioned um, the gender issue or the sex issue of like women in particular have had to renegotiate some boundaries. Um, and some of that is positive. A lot of that has been unfair mm -hmm. and really, really challenging, especially early in the, the pandemic years. And I have questions about like, how does this shake out? And I'm not sure we're going to know for another, you know, two to four years on this stuff. Um, yeah. I think a big fear is we've given people a lot of flexibility, which has allowed us to make decisions, volitional, probably overall healthy decisions to be more mindful with our family. I know this has been something that's affected me, but our who's making the, the real big, meaningful, impactful decisions in some organizations? Is it the people that stayed at the office or had that luxury to go to the office? Mm -hmm. If so, like we're, we're going to have to reconcile, you know, some of these tough trade-off decisions that we've had to make. And I'm really interested to see how it goes. I mean, do you have any insight on that? Yeah, no, I'm super interested in this too. I have been making a lot of assumptions on this podcast, theorizing a ton about how this will all shake out. Two years ago, when I started this podcast, we were in the midst of lockdown in New York. And 
I was reading a lot about how women in the workforce were dropping out. Of, they were just dropping out of the workforce because, you know, there's obviously a, a, a notion around the pay discrepancies and disparities. And so women not always being the breadwinners, they were like, okay, well, someone's got to stay home with the kids. And they were pulling out of the workforce. And I theorized, well, this is going to really, this is going to impact us generationally over decades because the, the wage gap will continue to, um, in, in large. And then beyond that, we'll experience fewer women, less diversity in the workforce. And this has actually, I'm not tuning my own here, own horn here, but we've actually seen this kind of come to light. Not so much in the wage gap that has obviously always been an issue and remains an issue, but it is, it looks to be like it's closing um, more and more each year. However, we are seeing fewer women in the labor market, in the workforce, in the in the groups and pockets of people even looking for jobs. So this will, again, impact us generationally. And so I don't necessarily know from a, I can confirm this and I'd bet my life savings on it perspective, but I do like to make theories and predictions so that I can go back and say, oh yeah, I predicted it correctly or I predicted correctly. And my prediction with this is that we are going to, and this is kind of going back to what I had said two years ago, that we are going to end up in this position of people are going to want more diversity, but there isn't going to be as as diverse a pool of candidates and there it is only going to make things more difficult i think there will be other uh individuals in the workforce who will want that same balance that that women are saying well i, I have no option i have to be there for my families and of course there there are there are outliers here right so i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the majority here i i think that we are going to see almost a regression i do and i'm actively fighting that. I think that we have to find a way to be in the workforce and strike a balance. And I think this is where ultimately, and this is where I'll, I'll put my, my money where my mouth is, businesses have to be the ones to make the change. They have to enable people to not sacrifice one thing for another. And this is kind of coming back to what I had said before that I grew up seeing and hearing and experiencing the uh, this like workaholic i am living to work not working to live uh, mentality and i don't want that for myself organizations have to be able to separate the two and that's to me the only way that we'll be able to change the course of what i would imagine is like the projected history in the future yeah that's good and i i admire and i sort of share your perspective of to advance really strong opinions, uh, but have them loosely held so that we can talk about it. I um, love that. That's exactly it. It's like, say exactly what I mean really strongly, but then also I'm happy to say I was wrong. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about the Employee Onboarding Podcast by Process Street. If you care about crafting a magical experience for new employees and you love podcasts, you won't want to miss this. Join the Process Street team as they have conversations with people leaders and technology creators exploring the world's most magical onboarding experiences. You will learn cutting-edge best practices, industry secrets, and technology to wow every new employee that walks through your door. 
I recommend the episode where Process Street CEO Vinay Patankar sat down with Zapier CEO Wade Foster to talk about how they've scaled employee onboarding in a $5 billion remote first organization. And the conversation with Ben Eubanks discussing how to leverage AI and automation to improve the new employee experience will blow your mind. You can find the employee onboarding podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Go ahead and check it out. And don't forget, if you're interested in supercharging your employee onboarding or other HR processes, go ahead and give Process Street a try. You can sign up for a free account at www.process.st or check out their YouTube channel for a bunch of webinars and demos. This episode is brought to you by Namely. Running HR for a mid-sized business means you need software that can keep up with all that you do so you can focus on strategy, culture, and keeping your employees happy. You need Namely, the all-in-one HR solution that makes life easier for your employees, your boss, and you. Namely's HR platform covers your essential HR and compliance needs in one place. Whether you have 50 or 1,000 employees, Namely's all-in-one integrated platform is designed to be used by everyone every day. With a mobile app and elegant UI, Namely lets employees request PTO, appreciate peers, review their pay stubs, and even answer their own HR questions. Namely offers it all, from onboarding and payroll to time tracking, benefits, employee engagement, and so much more. You'll finally have the time and data you need to drive the initiatives your company really cares about. I want you to simplify your HR processes with Namely, so I've arranged a special offer for my listeners. Right now, get a free month of unlimited access to Namely's all-in-one HR platform, but only when you go to namely.com slash human HR. Remember, for your free month, go to namely.com slash human HR. Yeah, uh, so I'm definitely cheering for a different outcome than the yeah. one we're, we're talking about. And organizations um, overall, not just any single organization, but our employers, I guess, really have an opportunity right now to do some positive things. Yes. And while I'm skeptical, I am also hopeful that at least some of the positive gains and some of the things that we've learned over the past few years uh, will stick with us. I'll point out one sort of pretty scary thing that, that that's causing some concern uh, when I kind of think about what's going to happen. It's it's when everything went sideways and we were forced to do all of these things different. We got like a six month runway because it was a crisis and everybody was right. willing to just kind of, you know, we'll do it because we know we're, we still had empathy towards our leaders. Like we know they don't know what they're doing. Uh, we, we had empathy towards our, our subordinates, our employees. They didn't know what was happening. And then we kind of, I don't know if normalize is the right word, but we, we turned a corner and it became more routine than it was. While all this was going on, at least in the U.S. and in many other developed economies, it was really hard to get talent. Um, mm -hmm. People were moving. People were quitting. It was impossible to hire people. Wages increased a lot. We know now part of that's probably tied with inflationary things. But whatever the case, like the employee, the worker really had some power in the employee-employer dynamic. Right. Now we see economies tightening. Um, in the space that I'm doing a lot of work, which is sort of the, the tech space, the high growth space, we're seeing tightening of we're not hiring as much. In some cases, we're actually doing riffs. What happens when the employer takes back the power in that relationship? Do we immediately cede all that ground that we made together? Or do we just we immediately go back to the ways that it, that it was in the old days? And now people that have made these decisions about how they're going to work and what they're going to prioritize get penalized even more. Mm -hmm. So lots of words. 
just to say, I don't know, but I'm watching closely. <laughs> yes, it's I, I'm with you. I think this is where the more we can talk about the implications and what could happen and we make these predictions, not just us, but also other you know, thought leaders in this space and academics, especially writers, journalists, whoever is involved, politicians. I think the it can sometimes prevent the worst case scenario because there's this anticipation and prevention. So I'm hoping that all of my babbling goes towards something positive in preventing any uh, negative consequences for striking a balance and being in the, the driver's seat. Well, certainly as a professor, I share your proclivity towards trying to talk away a problem. Yeah. So we, sh we share this. Right. I love it. Well, I know um, one of the things that really stuck with me when we first spoke was this concept, of course, of imposter syndrome. It is not a new concept, not a new ideology. Um, but what we were talking about was this, I, this concept of either we back away or we deflect accountability. And imposter syndrome in many people tends to take over. And in others, it's this like, okay, I'm not backing away from what I want. I'm just going to go for it. This is like, I'm getting in my way. Um, but when we think about imposter syndrome, I know we also started to talk about being self-aware and uh, being a true imposter, that there are, there are people in these buckets of maybe it's just imposter imposter syndrome there's a there's a need to be a little bit more confident and self-aware and understanding of what your skill set is and appreciating that you could be ready for the next step and you just have to see yourself there and then there's this true or this trueness behind some people are just overjobbed and they have to be able to see what's right for them versus, you know, where they need more growth. So when I think about this concept of the growth mindset coupled with imposter syndrome, I think that it all kind of comes down to self-awareness. So can you walk us through like how you see imposter syndrome and self-awareness and how, again, kind of tied with growth, the growth mindset, how this all works together? Um, I will do my best. So I'm a big fan of self-awareness in general and in my coaching and in my teaching and my con my consulting sort of these one-off gigs one of the first steps we always take is let's do some sort of assessment um, one of the ones that i use is the hogan assessments you can do several different things with these uh, we're focusing on personality derailers things like this you can do it at the team level also um, but the tool is really not the most important thing the most important thing is for for people to see themselves at least in passing how others see them. So this is really, really important for understanding, you know, where we're starting from and where we might need to go. So self-awareness is critical. Now to this idea of imposter syndrome, I think the term has been overused uh, quite a bit and you hear it all the time. It is by far like probably the most important like self-development challenge that we encounter in people leader accelerators, people that feel like they're over job, they feel like they cannot do this. Mm -hmm. um, and most of them are truly sufferers of imposter syndrome. And what I mean by that is these are people that have already shown they are successful, not only right. in their previous work, but they are succeeding right now in their current jobs and they still don't feel like they're capable of doing it. I, th I think the distinction with insecurity is that a lot of us will take a new job. We haven't yet proven that we can do this thing. Um, and we call ourselves imposters. That's 
we might actually be imposters. We don't know yet. So imposter syndrome is about people that have already done something. There's some observable proof right. that you can do this job and you still don't believe it. It's really odd. And it comes down to some, some common attribution errors. And so when we think about a normal person, whatever that means, I think me and you know that <laughs> this person doesn't exist, but a lot of us, when we we're not talking about jobs or something like this, when we have six, these are called fundamental attributions. And then we're going to get into this idea of fundamental attribution errors. When we have success, we say, oh, wow, that's because I worked hard. That's because I'm awesome. That's because I earned this success. And when thing goes, something goes wrong for us, we don't make these internal attributions. We instead make external attributions and we say, oh man, what a crappy environment or my teammate screwed me or something like this. This is, it's not my fault. Like the teacher hated me. That's why I got a C. Now, when we suffer from imposter syndrome, we see a different pattern. When we get success, so somebody gets an A on a test, but they feel like they're, in a, they're a sufferer of imposter syndrome, what they do is they make some sort of external attribution. They say, I got lucky. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I just, I didn't deserve it. I, I sure I just got lucky. And then when they, when there's a failure, they make internal attributions. They're like, ah, oh, I stink. I knew I couldn't do it. Blah, 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 blah. It's about me. And so what do we do to get past that? Well, uh, self-awareness is one, but beyond that, like, I think the most important thing is to have a strong support group. And here you want mentors that are in different mm -hmm. parts of your organization. You need friends, you need family. You want friends that have some sort of understanding of what you're going through. Interestingly, um, you want to be careful that your support group consists of more than just people that do the exact same job as you. So if you feel like an imposter um, and you're a senior analyst at some big company, Deloitte, Goldman, whatever, and then you ask other senior analysts doing that exact same job for advice on how to do something, are you, and then, and then they give you an answer. Well, now you've got a problem because now you've validated your imposter syndrome because the other people doing your job apparently in your eyes do understand it, whereas you didn't. So you want your support group to be kind of a diverse mix, including people that are not exactly in your role. That's that's exactly it. When I think about who who can support, I like this idea of the support group, who can support people in seeing the value that they add in seeing their success. That's really important. At some level, I also, I, and I'm pretty unapologetically this way, if someone has achieved success, let's say over five years, at some level, you've got to drop it. And I know that, you know, we all have insecurities and we all have our, you know, sometimes we stand in our own ways. And listen, there are moments where I feel imposter syndrome, but I tell myself, don't be ridiculous. Like, look at, yeah. look at what has been accomplished. But this is where I mean, like when I say to someone and I know I'm very direct and I'm not trying to be insensitive, but it's like sometimes you have to just you have to just get over it and you have to stop telling yourself you have to stop the self-doubt and you have to look at what you've done. And this is where for me, when I think about this term, like think globally, it's not just about the the added added benefit when you're in a business and what you're doing to grow a business it's also how you look at yourself you have to think globally you can't just look at yesterday or a week before you have to look at the entire picture so if someone to me like you're entitled to imposter syndrome for a certain period of your career and at certain transitional moments in your career and then you just have to get over it <laughs> but i realize yeah. that might be a little too direct for some people. Well, 
I'm not far off on this. And I also like really struggle with self-doubt and insecurities. And I don't know that I have it figured out. Mm. Like these things rear their ugly heads all the time. However, I think you're right. At some point, like you have to learn like either this is what's going to define me or it's not. And so mm -hmm. I know I have learned like I cannot be self-deprecating. I cannot like deflect all the time when I'm in front of certain audiences or I lose credibility. I lose yeah. the audience. And you know what? Somebody else will get that job, not Brad Harris. Yeah. Likewise, when I'm coaching people, including a, a few people in People Leader Accelerator, it's like we can go on this for a few weeks, you know, actually several weeks, like seven or eight weeks. It's a 16 week program. But if we're talking about the same issue of like not speaking up or being too afraid past that, like we have to have a, a pretty critical conversation. Like you're going to go in that meeting and you're going to do X or you're going to do this and you're going to try it and you may fail, but if you don't try it, like we are probably not the program for you. I mean, yeah. we will always cheer for you as a person, but clearly our coaching, our advising is not effective. Yeah. So it's very much a decision. Are you willing to do this? Yeah, there is so much pressure that we put on ourselves. And I'm the first one to say I do it to myself all the time. But we put so much pressure on ourselves, our career journeys, especially if we're high achieving, we want that next thing. And when you have all of that pressure, sometimes, you know, the higher you climb, the less oxygen there is. Like there's no one saving you the, the higher you go in your career. And so I think that level of pressure, if someone is experiencing continued self-doubt, you're, you're actually going to impact the people who work for you. So I think that's where it's like, do you just need to feel more secure in what you're doing today to get to that next level? Is this not the right next thing for you? Because it's not, it's not good for anyone to feel insecure or, um, you know, unready for the next step, or is it that you just have to knock it off? So that's really where I kind of make that statement. It's coming from all of those perspectives. Yeah. And, and we, I think we've kind of not been so specific in our discussion. It's like you're suggesting it's one thing to suffer from these things when you're an individual contributor, like we can finally, yeah. we can just say like, you're not ready yet and we can leave you alone and we can kind of, it can be a long drawn out process. But when we're leaders, like we cast a shadow, we bring the weather, all of these things mm -hmm. and people are dependent on us. And, and that's probably one of the most compelling arguments I've heard that has caused people to, to kind of move to your position of like, I got to knock it off. I got to do some different things. It's like, oh, wow. It's not just me that fails if I don't get this. It's my whole team that fails if I don't get right. this. Right. And that is a lot of pressure. And I get that some people just don't want that or they thought maybe they did and they just are realizing that that's not what motivates them, you know, succeeding in that type of high pressured experience. But this right. is, again, this all comes back to self-awareness. And I think it's okay if you think that you want it and you go for it and then you realize this actually is not making me happy at all. And I have to go back to something that did make me happy. Yeah. I mean, life is a process of elimination sometimes. <laughs> It's true. It's really true. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because we did um, have this conversation initially around organizational values and individual values. And this is a topic very near and dear to my heart. I sharing a, a personal anecdote here, which is very hard for me to do at this level because I always I kind of um, have always kept this side of my life very private for many reasons, mostly fear, but I, I am Jewish and in, or in my entire career, that's not something that I've always been very vocal about because of my own experience in, 
hatred and things like that and discrimination. So I've kind of, I've, I'm privileged in a way to be able to hide that side of me, although I don't want to and I'm not doing it anymore. So naturally we're recording this while organizations have addressed anti-Semitism in uh, what Kanye West has has uh, shared. And I'm not even going to go into it because I'm not giving that any more energy. But I share this or I bring this topic up because this is a perfect example of organizational values versus individual values. And I have had experiences where my personal values and even my personal safety have not been uh, the priority, at least as a perception from me, uh, by the organization. And I think this is something that everyone can relate to. If an organization holds values that align or misalign with my own values, how do I reconcile that? So I share that personal anecdote because I, one, I'm committed to being more of myself every day. And two, because I think it helps us to understand what we're talking about when it comes to our own individual values and organizational values. So where do we start with this? How do people find not negotiate their own values? Or is there an opportunity to actually have a growth mindset if your organization doesn't hold the same values as you. Yeah, that's a lot. So first of all, thank you for being open with me. I noticed that you also sort of revealed this in in one of your recent episodes. Um, interestingly, I think it was the HR nightmares episode that you also sort of yeah. said something about your own identity and how this might, how that influenced how you thought about a different situation. Um, so I admire this idea that you're revealing more of yourself and you're kind of taking ownership of that. Thanks. This is this is a complicated topic for, for me. And so I want to be thoughtful of it. I hope you'll extend some grace as you sort of interpret that I'm, I'm still working through this myself. Sure. I think at the organizational level, it's unreasonable that one firm, especially if this firm is, is committed to some sort of diverse and inclusive workforce, is going to nail down the three, four, five values that represent everybody that works for them. Right. Um, so I guess where I'll start with this is if, if I was leading an exec team or an organization towards some sort of values exercise, it starts with some canvassing of all the potential values that we could pick. Then we winnow down on what makes us actually different. Like, um, like you can think about a value like integrity. And I have mm -hmm. yet to meet, although I've seen organizations not live up to integrity, I've never seen any organization that feels like um, we are anti-integrity here. <laughs> All right. That on um, right. But, but these integrity, unless you have an exceptional reason why, I don't think integrity should be one of your top three core values. I think you're looking for the three things that you care about and that make you different that can help mm -hmm. you uh, articulate something to your customers, but also to your mm -hmm. employees. Um, so, and I think this, there's a really interesting study it involves hospitals and i saw this first um from a, a wall street journal opinion and they're secondhand citing this but uh, bob sutton was one of the the authors on this he's a stanford professor and he runs or he's affiliated with this thing called the friction project hmm. and in this hospital or hospitals that had more than four values or something like this had higher death rates or something like this than, than hospitals that had oh uh, three or fewer which the idea is if you have too much, you're focused on nothing. Okay. Now, so what do we do with all, if we only have three and we'll say three to five to be safe, if, we, if we're advocating that an organization only have three to five really meaningful values, 
what do we do about all of these other things that our employees and even our customers care about that are super important to them? Um, and here, I, I have to lay a stake in the ground firmly that I don't know. Um, but beyond that, like the temptation with this Adidas stuff and with Yee mm -hmm. and, and the anti-Semitism that's coming out is some organizations are going to make statements, probably justifiably so. They're going to come out and say, we are against this. Um, some organizations will take it a step further and sort of update their values to reflect this probably in some sort of um, broad way. The risk when you're constantly updating your values based on the latest mm -hmm. issue is now you've, you've painted yourself into a corner where someone can say, well, if you're not explicitly against this thing, the, or if you're not explicitly against, for this value, you must be against it. And I think that's a tricky spot for- I totally for agree. So totally. I, I think the challenge is to pick three values that really matter, but in that, whether it's separately or it's in part of those three values, you really have to make sure you are living what you try, what you say mm -hmm. you're living, things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that means, I mean, if you want me to, there's several phrases on values that I think are kind of helpful and they, they come across as sort of cliche, but if you want to know your values, look at your calendar and look at your pocketbook. Similarly, mm -hmm. if you want to know your values, show me who you hire and you fire, and that'll give me some idea of what your values are. And so yeah. th this is sort of how I think about it at the org level. Now at the individual level, you're trying to get a good enough fit where you can be yourself. Yes. Uh, maybe you don't even have to be your whole self, but you yeah. can be enough of yourself that for those eight to 10 hours a day or whatever it is you work, you're not in direct violation of any right. of your values. I love what you have shared in that whole last few minutes because it's made me think of a few things. One, I totally agree. Organizations cannot, it's, it is dangerous actually to constantly change values because it looks inauthentic, it looks performative, and it just creates a, a lot of confusion I th and I agree I think there are certain things that we have to expect from business and from business leaders and integrity is one of those things and uh, you know honesty is another thing right so there are things that I don't I think that having a value that's explicit in that way just makes it look like you're taking the easy way out like let's really think about the values that we want our organization to uphold and drive and it is it should be different than those things because those things should be a given and built into just the culture of any organization in my opinion so that's the first thing the second thing is there was an episode that i did maybe a year ago where I said, cancel, cancel culture. And that was the title because I mean it. And I even mean it in this situation. I don't think it's helpful when we don't have conversations. However, there are moments when people say they're not willing to learn and change and have conversations. And in this case with, with yay, I mean, we we see that that's true. And I think that when we see Adidas and Balenciaga and Gap and the real, real all saying enough is enough, I think that this is where we're, we can say at an organizational level, they're saying that they, at their, uh, from a values perspective, they're not tolerating hate. And when you say that, I think, you know, we, we saw a lot um, through social justice movements in 2020 that companies were figuring this out. How do we address hate? How do we take the importance of individual values 
this is where the driver's seat, again, the employee was hugely in the driver's seat and I think remains there, that individuals needed to feel safe. People needed to go to work knowing that their company didn't take joy in seeing violence against their communities. And I think that that is like single-handedly the most important takeaway when it comes to any uh, changes that a company might make or any statement that they might make regarding something that might compromise an individual's values that therein could compromise an organization's values. And when you say, when, when any action a company takes sends like 17 messages or like a hundred messages, it's like each person is going to have their own takeaway. So I agree that you have to feel maybe 70% like yourself or 60, maybe a little bit of the majority, at least 60% like yourself at work, your values have to align 60% of the time. These are totally arbitrary numbers that I'm throwing out there and have absolutely no statistical value. But at the end of the day, when I think about my own experience, it's like, if I don't feel like I can be myself, but I feel safe and can eventually be my authentic self, that's more important than anything else. And I think psychological safety, I know that this has, I'm sure that you're thinking through this too, but this has been a huge, huge topic since really since 2020. And that for me is like the core of it all. You don't have to, actually, I don't think organizations should ever feel that they have to respond to every single thing. In fact, I have struggled with this at a podcast level. Like I care about all of these things, but I'm not an expert in all these. I'm an expert in my own experience. And so how can I be authentic and not just say something just because I have the opportunity, but really say something that matters, bring on people who are experts in these topics so that it's not just, again, like this performance of feeling like I need to do it. And this is where organizations, I think, if they can create a safe environment for everyone from all backgrounds so that they can have conversations and they can encourage people to have open dialogue that might result in people disagreeing with one another, that's much more productive than an environment that says we are only going to be this way, no discussion about it, and then people don't feel safe in bringing up their own experiences, even if they align with the organization's values. Because it all, to me, it all comes down to this psychological safety. Businesses have a huge influence on how society acts and interacts intersectionally. So the more businesses can just say, we're not experts in this, but we want to create a safe space and we want to have the conversation with everyone, the better. I'm glad to, to be in the audience for that. I appreciate you sharing that. I think I think the first thing that came to mind is why didn't I think to bring up psychological safety? So a- Amy Edmondson's work <laughs> is the one that coined this term is like super influential and in sort of my spheres of research, especially around teams, but also organizations. You're right. Like we need, it's a fundamental um, parts of our job that we need to feel safe so that we can, we can really thrive. And so yes, yes, yes. And this idea that you're wrestling with with things and trying to just listen to different conversations and and not like project all of your lived experience out on everyone else, I admire that. It's a, I have a feeling this is going to be a constant tension for all of us that are really genuinely interested in trying to advance a better world for all of us, including at work. Uh, mm-hmm. So, hope that's a short reply, but preach. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it, and and. 
psychological safety, individual values, organizational values, at the end of the day, it comes back to what I said in the beginning, humanity. This is the human experience, the human condition. We all want to feel accepted and safe and welcomed and thought of and considered. And we also all want to be intrinsically and authentically who we are. And I really think that that, you know, the only moments that I can at least reflect on where I didn't necessarily feel like I could be myself was really in, in, in places or environments where people had never met someone like, you know, like me in this case, someone Jewish or had a misunderstanding or misrepresentation. Um, and again, this lack of understanding, it comes from a lack of knowledge and what enables more knowledge is conversations, education, opportunities to learn. And you can't do that if you don't talk and you don't have exposure to people from different backgrounds. I always say on this podcast too that um, it's really important, not just in diversity of in representation, but also in diversity of thought. Having people around you that think differently from you, that don't agree with you. And I'm sure that there are people who listen to the podcast who disagree all the time. And I'm glad. I hope that they do because there's, there is uh, nothing worse than having a group of people in a room who all agree. You're not growing. You're not learning. There's no challenge. Rounding out this conversation on the growth mindset, what would be your advice to someone who maybe is struggling with vocalizing their ideas? Maybe it has nothing to do with their values, but just vocalizing their ideas feeling like they can really be loud and proud about who they are and what they believe at work, what they want to see at work. Um, and seeing this, not just from like a confidence perspective, but actually from a growth mindset perspective that this will enable their further growth. What would you say? What's your advice to those, to those folks? Yeah. I mean, I, I end every one of my classes with this, this, this kind of my mantra on how I want my students to approach their, their world going forward. And it's be you, be kind. And the last one, or the third one is be bold. The, the last one is be great. But it, the be bold one is really interesting. And I, I try to push this idea that the answer is always it depends, that, that frustrates people. They're, especially the undergraduates, they just cannot stand this <laughs> mantra. But what, what I'm trying to convey in that, or at least part of that, is there are far fewer rules out there in the world than we think there are. We often think there's a system, there's a formula for getting it exactly right. But once you kind of get over the overwhelm of understanding no one has all the answers, it starts to, it, it gets a little bit easier, not easy, but mm -hmm. a little bit easier to see that there is a place for me, Brad Harris, Tracy, whoever, to really add value in a unique way. Um, and, and I also like clearly being different can be an asset. One of the best books I read in the past, you know, three or four years is a book called Edge by Laura Wong. Um, she's a friend of mine and she, she gives all of these stories about people that came from a lot of adversity and mm -hmm. how they turned that adversity into some sort of advantage that drove them to success. Now, I don't want it's not an easy book to read. It's not it's not a fairy tale, yeah. but there is just lot of compelling arguments in, in Laura's book that, you know, there is something inside of us that the world needs. And part of it's on us to find our place. And it's a journey for sure. But if we're not bold enough to take a chance, it never gets out there. Right. I love that. I really appreciate that. I think 
all of the this conversation has been really um, inspiring and really helpful. I know from as far as my listeners go, there are tons and tons of listeners who are breaking into HR and really are trying to get their footing and are trying to grow into that next, you know, C-suite track, right? And this, all of this, I love that you say it always depends because it does, it depends. Everything can end with it depends or be answered with it depends. And I love that you said that be you, be kind, be bold, because it's like really underpinning all the things that we've spoken about today. Well, for any of your listeners, like you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Brad Harris. I mean, I'm happy to help where I can. I will also be the first to say, I don't know if I don't, but we also have some resources on People Leader Accelerator, our website, peopleleaderaccelerator.com. And if, if anybody wants to download any of our paid guides, you get one for free if you enter the, the code podcast. Uh, so we are just one of several communities out there to help these people that are just breaking through. Um, but yeah, find your group and find your home. And I think Tracy, you and I are both, we're cheering for these people, right? Yes, we're cheering for you. You've got this. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Dr. Brad Harris, I'm definitely going to make sure that I link that and everything in the show notes so that everyone can uh, get their guides and and be on the, their way to the journey of success. And so I really appreciate your time. I appreciate that you spent all of this time with us. So thank you so much. <laughs> 